Welcome to Personal Financial Strategy, the podcast, a podcast wholly devoted to you and your relationship with money, bringing expertise to bear on how you earn, invest, and spend your hard-earned cash. I'm your host, Tony King, and today we welcome a special guest to the podcast, Pam Hill. Pam is a personal finance blogger and host of the My Smart Cousin podcast. Welcome to the Personal Financial Strategy podcast, Pam. Thank you so very much, Tony. Really been looking forward to speaking with you and your audience. Thank you so much for being here. Appreciate you giving us some of your time today. And you know, one of the things that our listeners are most curious about our guests is where do they live and work from? Absolutely. Uh, So I live and work from the greater Philadelphia area. So think bedroom community, uh, about 20 minutes or so away from the heart of Philly. Oh, is that right? What's the name of it? It's called Marcus Hook, Marcus Hook, Pennsylvania. Oh, do you know who Marcus Hook was? do not know. That is an excellent question. I don't have, I, I'm sure any elementary schooler uh, in this neighborhood could tell me. <laughs> yeah, well, you probably didn't grow up there, did you? I did not. I did not. Grew up in New York, Queens, New York. Oh, is that right? Well, that's a good introduction to what I was going to ask you next. Was I was going to ask you if you'd share with us what uh, your background, how you grew up, and what led you to what you're doing today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, So grew up uh, in a working class neighborhood in Queens, New York um, called St. Albans, which is part of Jamaica. So in Jamaica, Queens, I was a great uh, upbringing, uh, two parents, a very loving household, but probably like a lot of folks, uh, it had its financial struggles for sure. And I certainly got a chance to hear those and see those. Uh, I suppose the only kind of financial lessons maybe uh, that I learned in in an explicit way from my parents uh, would have been around bills, paying bills. So nothing around investing, a little tiny bit around saving, like a Christmas savings account they used to have back then. So uh, all of the personal financial knowledge uh, was probably a combination of inbred of, you know, from very early, I would be the kind of kid that would sell sunflower seeds uh, to neighbors and sell candy at uh, middle school until, you know, the high school teacher said, uh, or middle school teacher said, break it up, break it up, you know, ended my little monopoly and so on, you know, lots of little entrepreneurial ventures. But I didn't really begin to internalize personal finance as something that should be a way of life for me, I would say uh, until corporate America. So I, my uh, schooling uh, in terms of um, how I grew up, I was one of the kids that was bust out of the neighborhood. Oh, really? Uh, yep. And so, you know, I, I say to my mom, kudos, 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 because that had to be the case, unfortunately, because the neighborhood school uh, was not as strong as it needed to be. So Mm. early on, I suppose I got a sense of a different culture from third grade on through busing. And once I started to really apply myself and think about college, I had a great high school teacher who said, Pam, you should start looking at Ivy League schools. And so that's what I did. So I went to Dartmouth and at Dartmouth, uh, they require a language. uh, So I took Chinese And uh, then that gave me yet another giant cultural angle because I spent about a year in China. And then from there, I went to Harvard um, to the Graduate School uh, of uh, Government called Kennedy School of Government. So all of that kind of white shoe type background 
led to corporate America eventually uh, on the electric utility front, uh, two big utilities, Exelon and Southern Company. And it was there that I began to have kind of a hand-in-hand experience with financial planners who helped me understand the, the nuts and bolts and just the plain English of the jargon that personal finance is often cloaked in, but perhaps not intentionally, but, but nonetheless, it's, a, it's, it's not understood uh, by just regular folk. And so once I saw that, then I just began to talk to family members. We do a family reunion on my mom's side every year. And uh, so I kind of became uh, that smart cousin that would always ask them, tell me about your 401k. Tell me about, you know, did you make that investment you told me you were going to make uh, in your 401k or did you even open it? Did you open your savings account? Did you figure out how to apply for some kind of rent relief. So that's that's just been me. Uh, and that's uh, why when I started my company, My Smart Cousin, that I decided to christen it as such so that it would feel like the family relationship that I like to establish with folks. And My Smart Cousin focuses on real estate investment, but certainly a real estate investment and personal finance go hand in hand. So we spend a lot of time with clients on that as well. Thank you for telling the story of the origin of your, your company name. I love your company name, by the way. Um, It's, it's, it's so unique and I, I'm sure it, uh, you know, it kind of, in the world of personal finance or just finance, everything is, is so, so formal and, uh, you know, forgive the expression, but stodgy. Yes. And, um, um, I love the fact that your company name is not exactly. <laughs> it's, exactly. uh, it, it's actually, uh, kind of, kind of knocks down a little bit of a barrier right at the beginning. Yes. Absolutely. It's familiar. Yes. And that's what I wanted to evoke was uh, kitchen table finance. Yeah, there you go. That's that's where it's done. Well, thank you for that story. I appreciate it. And I think, you know, because we've chatted beforehand, Pam, you know that that at Personal Financial Strategy, very stodgy name. uh, (laughs) What we're focused on, though, is kind of the uh, day to day finances for people. And what we're trying to do with everybody is create a financial engine within their life that has an output that is consistent on a month-to-month basis. And that consistent output, we always advise, goes into investment of some form for their future or just for their overall well-being. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the investment categories that a lot of listeners out there are top of mind today is real estate. And I know you're an expert in that. And um, I think though, as we talked a little bit beforehand, I, I, I think our clients are, they're, they're in this place. They've been investing, investing in equities, kind of traditional things, mutual funds, stocks, ETFs, those kinds of things. But in the last year, They've just seen those things get murdered. And so they're starting to think about, okay, diversification. I get some of the safety that's attached to to real estate, but I really don't know how to step into that. And so I was wondering, I know you have this little little slogan that you say, you say you can buy a home for the price of a car. And uh, I was just wondering, is that really possible today? I wonder if you could explain that to us. 
Absolutely. And so the origin of that slogan is when I bought my first house, I said, how is it that these houses cost the price of a car? This makes no sense to me and how I fell into it. And I did. I, I didn't have foresight or a crystal ball. You know, I wasn't that smart. I wish I wish I had been or and I would have started this 20 years ago, but I fell into it like a lot of times uh, opportunities present themselves. So at the time, my husband, we were dating then. Um, so before we got married, you know, we were dating and he lived in an apartment in a a city in Delaware called Newark. So um, looking for a house to buy. And Wilmington, Delaware is not too, too far from Newark. So we started looking there. And uh, we started uh, with the telescope, I guess the opposite way. A lot of times our realtors will qualify a person or banks will qualify a person based on the limit. How much can you spend? Let's buy up to that limit uh, as opposed to the opposite way. What's the cheapest we can get away with uh, and still have you feel like, yes, this house will work. So that's how it is that we started uh, from lowest price to highest price. And we never got anywhere near highest price. So by looking at lowest price, we saw houses that were in the 20,000s. And this was right around the Great Recession, I'd say around 2012, 2013. So 20,000, 30,000, up to as much as 40,000, but still just like good, good houses in solid neighborhoods, row houses, three bedroom, one bath typically. So he bought a house for $26,500. And when I saw that, I, I couldn't unsee it. So that became my new way of investing. Uh, I was in corporate America uh, in a high power job. So I already was very well familiar with just what you mentioned, the equity markets, the bond markets, uh, and had uh, money invested there and thought that would be the totality of my personal wealth strategy. But by seeing these houses, I thought you, you just can't lose, not at these prices. I looked to see what they had been selling for, call it 10, 15 years prior to the 2013-14, by the time I got around to it, neighborhood, and they were selling for over 100. And so like a lot, you just now mentioned with the stock market, how things get knocked down. And then before you know it, they go back up. So I thought at 20 something thousand, I'm certainly not going to cry into my glass of wine if it goes down to 20,000 or 15,000, because I'll still have the rents and the rents are the annuities in my brain. Mm -hmm. So that's what led me to it. And so I began to buy first in Wilmington at that price point, then looked for areas just outside, but sort of within drivable distance, call it a half hour to at most an hour, which meant uh, Southern New Jersey, Southeast New Jersey, as well as uh, Southeast Pennsylvania, like Marcus Hook, uh, became part of the equation. So uh, I bought 25 houses that way. The cheapest was 2,500 uh, and the most expensive was 35,000. And all of the houses were, were houses that didn't require, let's say a wrecking ball to get started with the renovation. They were all reasonable shape. Some were in great shape. Some were in so-so nah, shape. Uh, and so the most I'd say uh, that I would plan on spending would be maybe $25,000. And that 25000 on the renovation front goes towards the two biggest ex expenses. Uh, one is going to be your furnace, either a gas furnace or a boiler, a gas boiler or possibly oil. Usually those are in not great shape. And so that might be 
eight grand, 10 grand. And then next is the roof. Uh, usually the roof doesn't require a total teardown and you can get away with uh, just replacing some sections. And then after that, you're talking about mainly cosmetics. So a lot of paint, a lot of sheetrock, like holes on wall in walls. I love to see uh, because I know that a lot of people hate to see that. They think, oh my God, well, we have, this is a teardown. No, it is not. It is a piece of sheetrock uh, that costs 20 bucks. <laughs> Um, and same with carpet and old appliances like those are all my favorite things to see beat up cabinets like those are very easy to replace and very cheap to replace and they're really the jewelry of the house that sparkles in the eye of the potential renter and so my strategy is buy renovate so fix it up uh, and then rent it out and to the question um, that folks I know would have, of uh, can you still do this? You know, that's great, Pam, that you got in during the Great Recession. But what about right now with inflation at 8%? Yeah. The answer is this. So 30s is probably hard, but I would say 40s, 50s, up to 60, which sadly, the prices of cars have also uh, escalated to that level. There's still plenty out there. Not as much in the areas where I am. Uh, so just a couple of days ago, I was looking in Wilmington. I didn't see anything that looked uh, within uh, what, what I would call fixable for, let's say, 20 to 25,000. I didn't see anything for less than 70. But even 70,000 is a lot cheaper than most folks would think, uh, where you can still find 40 and 50,000 without trouble at all is just about all of the Midwest in the U.S., a lot of the South. Uh, not all of it. We know there are certain cities, Atlanta, forget about, uh, but certainly Georgia, other cities in Georgia, yes. Even the Northeast, as an example, the state of New York. New York City, of course not. No yeah. house to the car there. But New York State, Albany, Binghamton, uh, I'm talking cities that are college towns. Of course, Albany is the capital of New York. These are cities that oftentimes are a little hard scrabble, a little worn, uh, but they're the, the, the government, the governor, certainly uh, with a mansion, the governor's mansion in Albany cannot, will not turn their back on that city as a whole. Uh, and there you will find houses for still, uh, I, I just went on before I got on the show for $40,000 and perhaps a duplex or triplex for in the $70,000 neighborhood. Uh, and so that's where I coach my clients is if they don't want to move and I tell them, keep an open mind, don't rule out moving and having a mortgage that you can pay off in 10 years instead of a whole generation, 30 long, hard years. So don't rule out moving. But if you choose not to, then certainly uh, use this as an investment strategy. I can help you find the contractors that you would need if you're not uh, in that city where the house is located. And then, of course, find the property managers just going through a standard screening process, uh, a handholding, because that's usually what folks need. And then ultimately with the rental of the property. Right. And giving you that, that cash flow monthly income stream that Absolutely. any investment on Wall Street does not give you. <laughs> Cannot. And uh, on top of the cash flow, the return that you're getting on your asset, you also have a lottery ticket value. And I suppose maybe stocks have that as well. But when you buy a house for the price of a car, the lottery ticket value means that should that neighborhood turn into anywhere in Brooklyn uh, type yeah. phenomenon, 
it could become a million dollar property. And even if it doesn't go to that level, it can still increase significantly. So as an example, I bought a house through a website called auction.com. So folks who are wondering, where can you find these houses, Pam? Uh, You can find a lot of them just right on the MLS system. If you go on Redfin or I don't know, Zillow or any of the others, and you do just like my husband did, search from cheapest to highest. Don't just let it spit out. These are the recommended houses you should buy. No, put in a filter and go with a minimum of 10 grand and a high of 60,000. And then look from lowest to highest and then maybe put in two bedrooms, one bathroom, something like that. If you do that, that's where you will see low cost houses. But The house that I bought on auction.com, I got it for $13,500. It's in Southeast Jersey. I bought it in 2018. And uh, I'm going to be selling that house to fund another uh, house that I bought, uh, more of a commercial property. And uh, so that house uh, that I bought for $13,500 now is a market value of $130 to $160. And that, of course, is courtesy crazy COVID. But even still, if COVID Mm -hmm. hadn't happened, it would have gone up to 50, 60. So that's why uh, I buy these houses, not to flip them, not to flip them immediately. Let's put it that way. But to hold on to them, let them mature like a fine wine type thing and and just clip the coupons uh, of rent. And, you know, within four years, five years, it's broken even. And everything after that is just... Is just pure return. Yeah, that's an awesome story. And you've been at it a while. So, and it sounds like you have a, a portfolio of properties that you're holding. I'm wondering, do you do any analysis on, on that, uh, on, on the principal growth on a year to year basis, like over a portfolio, 10 to 20 properties? Can you, count, yes. do you say there's, uh, you can count on 6%? annually or? Yes, absolutely. I probably, uh, you know how it goes, cobbler's children have no shoes. So uh, I certainly do it explicitly for my clients weekly. Uh, And then for myself, it's more like, okay, Pam, you know, good six months have gone by. What's going on with this stuff? But yeah, I would say none of my properties have a break even of shorter than seven years. And so seven years is an effective 15% 15% or so, right? Or or 14% there about, 14 times seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you say, okay, Pam, that sounds good from a gross income, but how about from an after uh, after expense? So you can count on, uh, let's see, I'll use the house that's the $13,500 purchase. So that house, when it was last renting, was renting for $1,250, twelve fifty a month. Since then, rents have gone up significantly. Again, courtesy COVID. And so if your listeners look at fair market rents, fair market rents are um, also called FMR. It's, it's just something that HUD uses. So because my houses are all in low income neighborhoods and why? Because you can't, you know, last I checked, Bill Gates neighborhood doesn't have houses for the price of a car. If they if he did, <laughs> I'd be buying them. So yeah. uh, I go no where the opportunity is. Exactly. So they're all in low income neighborhoods. Uh, and so HUD, uh, has the housing choice voucher program, which is uh, what most of my renters use, or if they don't use it, their income is sure in that same old neighborhood. 
uh, housing choice voucher is also called Section 8. So at any rate, HUD uh, bases the maximum rent off of what they call a fair market rent. And every year they print the latest fair market rent. Um, so for 2023, because HUD goes by their October 1 to September 30th fiscal year, that particular zip code, because HUD publishes these on a zip code by zip code basis, um, has a rent of, I think it's around 1600 or something like that for right. a three bedroom. So if you count on let's say half of it that you get to keep, right? The other half goes to, if you've got a mortgage on the house, some, you know, some kind of financing and certainly property tax is never going to go away and uh, probably some kind of management expenses here and there. Well, then that 800 times 12 puts you at about 10 grand a year on the house that you had bought for 13, five put you at what, maybe a 90% return, something like that. Yeah. That's, that's pretty phenomenal. I'm, I'm fascinated by your, your methodologies and you know, that, that might be a good play, a good place to segue into our closing for the show today. Mm -hmm. well, Well, Pam, I wonder if you let our listeners know what the, what's the very best way if they want to learn more about uh, invest, uh, real estate investment from you. What's the very best way to get in touch with you? Absolutely. Um, so two great ways. One is email uh, and the other is social. So email is info at mysmartcousin.com. So that's info, I-N-F-O, at mysmartcousin.com. So that's M-Y-S-M-A-R-T-C-O-U-S-I-N. Dot com. Uh, and then the other is social. So all of my handles on Twitter, on Instagram, Facebook, uh, it's all at my smart cousin, at my smart cousin. So try to keep it simple. Great. Thank you so much, Pam, for being with us today. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again in the future as things change. I hope you'll come back on the show. I would welcome it. I would welcome it. Absolutely. Okay. You have a great day and a great week. Thanks so much, Tony. And thank you to your listeners. Hope you enjoy. Bye-bye now. And until next time, strategists, keep on strategizing.